Welcome, friends. Pour your favorite cup of tea, coffee, or cocoa, and settle in for sips from the sip from the Utica Institute Museum. Sips from the Sip is all about sharing the history of little-known people and places in Mississippi. We're serving up truth, justice, with a dollop of sass. I'm your host, June Gray. Today's episode is the third of a multi-part series of readings and discussions from the book, Black Man's Burden. William Henry Holtzclaw was born in 1874 and raised in rural Randolph County, Alabama, to sharecropping parents. The Tuskegee graduate founded the Utica Normal and Industrial Institute for the Training of Colored Young Men and Women in Utica, Mississippi in 1903, making it the first little Tuskegee to be established in Mississippi. The Black Man's Burden, the autobiography of William Holtzclaw, published in 1915, made him one of the first black men to publish a book in Mississippi. Chapter 2 covers Holtzclaw's life with his family in rural Alabama. Chapter 2 When I was four years old, I was put to work on the farm, that is, at such work as I could do, such as riding a deaf and blind mule while my brother held the plow. When I was six years old, my four-year-old brother and I had to go two miles through a lonely forest every morning in order to carry my father's breakfast and dinner to a sawmill where he was hauling logs for 60 cents a day. The white man, Frank Weathers, who employed a large number of hands, both Negroes and whites, was considered one of the best and most upright men in that section of the country. In those days, there were no public schools in that part of the country for the Negroes. Indeed, public schools for whites were just beginning to be established. This man set aside a little house in the neighborhood of the sawmill, employed a teacher, and urged all the Negroes to send their children to this school. Not a great many of them, however, took advantage of his generosity, for this was at the time when everybody seemed to think that the Negroes' only hope was in politics. But my father and mother had great faith in education, and they were determined that their children should have that blessing of which they themselves had been deprived. Soon, however, Mr. Weathers had cut all the timber that he could in that section, and he therefore moved his mills to another district. This left us without a school. But my father was not to be outdone. He called a meeting of the men in that community, and they agreed to build a schoolhouse themselves. They went to the forest and cut pine poles about eight inches in diameter, split them in halves, and carried them on their shoulders to a nice shady spot, and there erected a little schoolhouse. The benches were made of the same material, and there was no floor nor chimney. Some of the other boys' trousers suffered when they sat on the new pine benches, which exuded rosin, but I had an advantage of them in this respect, for I only wore a shirt. In fact, I never wore trousers until I got to be so large that the white neighbors complained of my insufficient clothes. Those benches, I distinctly remember, were constructed for boys and girls larger than I was, and my feet were always about 14 inches above the ground. 
In this manner, I sat for hours at a time, swinging my feet in the effort to balance myself on the pine pole bench. My feet often swelled, so that when I did get on the ground to recite, I felt as if a thousand pins were sticking through them, and it was very difficult for me to stand. For this inability to stand, I often got a good flogging, for I could not convince the teacher that I was not trying to make believe. School lasted two months in the year, through July and August. The house was three miles from our home, and we walked every day, my oldest sister carrying me astride her neck when my legs gave out. Sometimes we would have nothing more than an ear of roasted green corn in our baskets for dinner. Very often we had simply wild persimmons or ripe fruit picked from our landlord's orchard or nuts and muscadines from the forest. If we had meat, ten to one it was because old Buck had caught a possum or a hare the night before. Many a night the dogs and I hunted all night in order to catch a possum for the next day's noon meal. Although we were young, we were observant, and in this way we learned some things in that school, among them that the teacher, who was a married man, had fallen in love with his assistant teacher. He was constantly making eyes at her. She evidently reciprocated his affection, for at the end of the school year they eloped, and there was a great stir in the community in consequence. The people met at the little schoolhouse and very nearly decided that they would have no more school. But my father was there and counseled them that we had all suffered enough already from the affair and that we ought not to punish ourselves further. I attended the meeting myself with my father, and I remember that my sympathies were all for Miss Dealey. True, she had run away with the principal of the school, and nobody knew where they were, but I could not see what right anybody had to interfere with her love affairs, and I ventured to tell my mother so. Mother did not argue the question, but sat down and took me across her lap and proceeded to correct my views on the subject. Then she put the matter to me in the form of a question. She asked me how would I like to have some nice little lady run away with my father and leave me there for her to take care of. That settled it with me. Miss Dealey was forever afterward in the wrong. At the end of the first school year, there was a trying time in our family. On this occasion, the teacher ordered all the pupils to appear dressed in white. We had no white clothes, nor many of any sort for that matter. Mother and father discussed our predicament nearly all one night. Father said it was foolish to buy clothes which could be used for that occasion only. But my ever-resourceful mother was still determined that her children should look as well on this important occasion as any of our neighbors. However, when we went to bed the night before the exhibition, we still had no white clothes and no cloth from which to make them. Nevertheless, when we awoke the next morning, all three of us had beautiful white suits. It came about in this way. My mother had a beautiful white Sunday petticoat, which she had cut up and made into suits for us. As there is just so much cloth in a petticoat and no more, the stuff had to be cut close to cover all three of us children, 
and as the petticoat had been worn several times and was therefore likely to tear, we had to be very careful how we stooped in moving about the stage, lest there should be a general splitting and tearing with consequences that we were afraid to imagine. At the exhibition the next night, we said our little pieces, and I suppose we looked about as well as the others, at least we thought so, and that was sufficient. One thing I am sure of, there was no mother there who was prouder of her children than ours. The thing that made her so pleased was the fact that my speech made such an impression that our white landlord lifted me off the stage when I was finished speaking and gave me a quarter of a dollar. If there happened to be a school in winter time, I had sometimes to go barefooted and always with scant clothing. Our landlady was very kind in such cases. She would give me clothes that had already been worn by her sons, and in turn I would bring the broom straw from the sages with which she made her brooms. In this way, I usually got enough clothes to keep me warm. So with my mother's encouragement, I went to school in spite of my bare feet. Often the ground would be frozen, and often there would be snow. My feet would crack and bleed freely, but when I reached home, Mother would have a tub full of hot water ready to plunge me into and thaw me out. Although this caused my feet and legs to swell, it usually got me into shape for school the next day. I remember once when I had helped to lay by the crops at home and was ready to enter the little one-month school, it was decided that I could not go because I had no hat. My mother told me that if I could catch a coon and cure the skin, she would make me a cap out of that material. That night, I went far into the forest with my hounds and finally located a coon. The coon was a mighty fighter, and when he had driven off all my dogs, I saw that the only chance for me to get a cap was to whip the coon myself. So together with the dogs, I went at him, and finally we conquered him. The next week, I went to school wearing my new coonskin cap. Exertions of this kind from time to time strengthened my will and my body and prepared me for more trying tests which were to come later. As I grew older, it became more and more difficult for me to go to school. When cotton first began to open early in the fall, it brought a higher price than at any other time of the year. At this time, the landlord wanted us all to stop school and pick cotton, but Mother wanted me to remain in school. So when the landlord came to the quarters early in the morning to stir up the cotton pickers, she used to outgeneral him by hiding me behind the skillets, ovens, and pots, throwing some old rags over me until he was gone. Then she would slip me off to school through the back way. I can see her now with her hands upon my shoulder, shoving me along through the woods and underbrush in a roundabout way, keeping me all the time out of sight of the great plantation until we reached the point a mile away from home where we came to the public road. There my mother would bid me goodbye, whereupon she would return to the plantation and try to make up to the landlord for the work of us both in the field as cotton pickers. But when I became too large to be conveniently hidden behind our few small pots, I had to take my place on the farm. When I was nine years old, I began to work as a regular field hand. My mother now devised another plan to keep me in school. 
I took turns with my brother at the plow and in school. One day I plowed and he went to school. The next day he plowed and I went to school. What he learned on his school day, he taught me at night, and I did the same for him. In this way, we each got a month of schooling during the year, and with that month of schooling, we also acquired the habit of studying at home. That we learned little enough may be seen from the following incident. I was ordered to get a United States history, and my father went to the store to get one, but the store's keeper, not having one, sold him a biography of Martin Luther instead, without telling him the difference. So I carried the book to school and studied it for a long time, thinking that I was learning something about the United States. My teacher had neglected to tell me the name of the land I lived in. It was hard enough for me to find a way to go to school. When it was not one obstacle, it was another. More than once, I worked hard for 11 months in the year without receiving a single penny. Then in order to enter school, I split rails at 50 cents a hundred during the month of December to get money with which to buy clothes. When I reached the age where my school days were, for the time, at an end, I was hired out to a white man for wages in order to help support the family. Seeing that there was no chance for further schooling, I became morose, disheartened, and pulled away from all social life except the monthly religious meetings at the little cabin church. Nevertheless, I gathered all the books I could find or borrow and hid them in the white man's barn where I spent every bit of my spare time in trying to satisfy my desire for knowledge of the world of books. In this manner, I spent all my Sundays. It was during this time that I came across the life of Ignatius Sancho, who was an educated black West Indian. It was the first thing in the way of a biography of a colored man that I had found, and I cannot express the inspiration I received from learning for the first time that a colored man could really make history. It was in 1880 that my father finally despaired of getting ahead by working on the share system, that is, by working crops for half the profit. Encouraged by the success of other Negroes around him, and urged on by the determination of my mother and the persistence of us children, he determined to strike out for himself. His idea was first to rent land, furnish his own stock, and farm implements, then after having paid for his stock, to buy land. I remember that when he announced this plan to us children, we were so happy at the prospects of owning a wagon and a pair of mules and having only our father for boss that we shouted and leaped for joy. Sure enough, he carried out his plans, in part at least. He rented a farm of 40 acres for which he paid annually three bales of cotton worth $150. He bought a mule, a horse, and a yoke of oxen, and we started out for ourselves. The effort brought about a transformation in the spirits of the whole family. We all became better workers and for the first time began to take an interest in our work. However, before the crops were laid by, many troubles arose. One of our oxen broke his neck. One mule was attacked with some peculiar disease. I think they called it the hooks. And the horse became so poor and thin that he could not plow. I shall never forget that mule. His ailment was a peculiar one. 
He could plow all day with ease, seemingly in perfect health, but after he lay down for the night, he could not get up again. If we would help him to his feet, he would eat a good meal and work faithfully all day long. Consequently, the first thing I heard in the morning was my father's voice arousing me from sleep, saying, Son, son, get up. Day's breaking. Let's go and lift the old mule up. We also had to call in a neighbor each morning. Toward the end of the season, old Jim began to get so weak that it was difficult for him to do any plowing, and before the crop was laid by, he gave out entirely. At this juncture, not to be outdone, my brother and I took the mule's place at the plow with my sister at the plow handles, and in this way we helped to finish the crop after a fashion, so as to be ready to enter school the first day it opened in August. The faithful ox that was left to us was always on hand, and it was my duty to plow and haul with him. In order to plow with an ox, one has to put a half-inch rope around his head and let it extend to the plow handles for use as a line and bridle. That ox's head was so hard that a sore was cut into my hand from jerking him for four years, and the scar is still there. My father was without experience in self-direction and management, having always, up to that time, had a white man to direct him. As a consequence, our efforts to do business for ourselves was not wholly successful. I have already spoken of our trials during that first year. Things went well during the early part of the second year, and the crop was laid by with little mishap, except that my father who plowed without shoes, stepped on the stub of a cane, which, entering his foot, made him useless as a field hand for the greater part of the year. I recall that Father carried a piece of cane two inches long in his foot for more than a month until he finally drew it to the surface by the application of fat meat poultices. How much better it would have been if he could have had a modern surgeon who would have drawn the splinter in two minutes. The crops were laid by, however, by the 1st of August, and we entered the little school, where we remained for one month. Our corn crop that year was splendid. We gathered it and piled it in heaps in the field one Friday and Saturday. On Sunday, there was a cloudburst, and all the corn was washed away by the little creek that passed through the plantation. This was a severe blow to us, one from which we were never wholly able to recover. However, we struggled on. The next year, just as we were ready to gather our crop, a disease called the slow fever broke out in our family. It was a great scourge and all the more serious because we were not able to employ a physician and because my father was compelled to be away from home during the day working for food to keep us alive. My brother Lewis was born in the midst of this raging epidemic, and my mother was not able to leave her bed to wait on those who were sick. The only attention we got was that which neighbors could give during the little time that they could spare from picking their own cotton. Although I never took to my bed during the two months that we suffered, I was almost as sick as the rest of the family. Mother had us put in little beds that hovered around her bed, and she waited on us the best she could until she was almost exhausted. But in spite of her efforts, Lola, 
my oldest sister, and the most beloved member of the family died. I distinctly remember that this so affected me that I did not care to live any longer. The fact is, I wanted to join her, and in my youthful mind, I felt that she was better off than we were. It was after she had been buried and after we had returned from the little cemetery, all of us being still far from well, that I heard my father pray his first prayer before the family altar. The calamity was a great blow to him and brought about a change in his life that lasted as long as he lived. The fourth and last year that we tried to get on by our own initiative, we had several unique experiences. At the end of that year, we came out so far in debt that after we had paid our creditors all the cotton we had made, they came and took our corn and finally the vegetables from our little garden, as well as the chickens and the pig. I felt that we ought to fight and not to allow all our substance to be taken from us, and I told my father so, but he insisted that we must obey the law. My mother, however, was a woman with considerable fire in her makeup. When they came and entered the crib to take the corn, we children commenced to cry. Then my mother came out and with considerable warmth demanded that a certain amount of corn be left there. She said that was the law. I do not know how she knew anything about the law, but I do know that the white man who was getting the corn respected her knowledge of the law and left there the amount of corn that she demanded. Having succeeded thus far, she demanded that he leave the chickens and vegetables alone, and this he also did. However, we were so completely broken up at this time that we applied to a white man for a home on his place, a home under the old system. My father only lived a short while after that, and he was never able to lift himself from the condition of a share tenant. On the morning of Christmas Day, 1889, my father seated himself on the roots of a large oak tree in the yard just after breakfast and, calling me to him, said, Son, you're nearing manhood and you have no education. Besides, if you remain with me till you are 21, I will not be able to help you. For these reasons, your mother and I have decided to set you free, provided you will make us one promise, that you will educate yourself. By that time, Mother had come up, and there we all stood. My mother and I were crying, and I'm not sure that my father was not. I accepted the proposition and hurried off across the forest, where about a mile away I secured work with a white man at 30 cents a day and board. Although we usually took a week for Christmas, that day my Christmas ended. I was very much excited. It was difficult for me to restrain myself. I was free. I was now to enjoy that longed-for opportunity of being my own master. The white man for whom I worked could neither read nor write. For that reason, I feared to let him see me with books, lest he should resent it. But nothing ever came of my apprehensions. At the end of six months, I ran across, quite accidentally, I will say providentially, the Tuskegee student, a little newspaper published by the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute at Tuskegee, Alabama. In it, there was the following note. There is an opportunity for a few able-bodied young men to make their way through school, provided they are willing to work. 
Application should be made to Booker T. Washington, principal. I scribbled up some sort of application and addressed it simply to Booker T. Washington with nothing else on the envelope. All the same, it reached him, and I was admitted. Then came the question of clothes to wear to Tuskegee. Up to that time, I had worn only two garments at a time, a cotton shirt and a pair of cotton trousers. I had never worn an undergarment of any kind, and I had an idea that such garments were only worn on Sundays to keep the starched top clothes from scratching. Now that I was about to be off for Tuskegee, I had not only to provide myself with collars, cuffs, and at least one stiff bosom shirt, but I had to learn to wear them. My white neighbor gave me collars, shirts, and so on, secondhand, and they were all too large by three sizes. Imagine a boy with a number 13 neck circled by a number 16 collar about an inch and a half too high for him, and you have a picture of me as I prepared to go away to school. However, clothes were at this time one of my minor troubles. I was still giving my wages to my mother to help support the family. It was hard for me to forego the continuance of this help, especially as the family had grown so large by this time and needed more money. Nevertheless, the desire for education overcame all these scruples. But there was still another subtle difference working against me. All the older neighbors counseled me not to go to Tuskegee. They said it was nothing but an old Baptist school where they fed you on bread, cornbread, and worked you to death. They said that boys who had no money and had to work their way through would be looked down on by the more fortunate. That Booker T. Washington was an infidel. And lastly, that I had enough education anyway. I could teach school. And what else was there for me to do? This appealed to my ignorance and my vanity was hard to overcome. Nevertheless, I decided to go and spend three months by which time I expected to get all that Tuskegee had for me and return. The first day of October 1890, therefore, I found myself at Tuskegee. I presented myself at Mr. Washington's office for my entrance examination. I was now a young man, but I could not tell an answer to his questions in what country I lived, nor what state, nor what county. I knew that I was from Roanoke, and to me, Roanoke was the whole thing. Mr. Washington put his hands over his mouth and laughed a little. Then he sent me to his wife, she was Miss Murray at this time, for further examination. I remember one question she asked me. What are the parts of speech? I had never studied written language, so I answered according to my knowledge that the parts of speech were lips, teeth, tongue, and throat. My final examination was on the farm where I was sent to strip fodder from some sorghum cane. Here I was much like the proverbial rabbit in the briar patch. I could easily make a hundred per cut. I stripped the cane so clean that it shone. Accordingly, I was admitted as a regular work student, working one year on the farm in the daytime and attending school at night. The first night when I went to bed in Tuskegee, I found myself between two sheets, something I had not been accustomed to. 
During the night, an officer came in and asked me some questions about nightshirts, comb, brush, and toothbrush, with all of which I was but slightly familiar. He made me get up, pull off my shirt, collar, tie, and hose, and he told me I would rest better without them. I thought he was playing a college trick on me, but I obeyed. I could not see the reason for wearing one shirt in the daytime and a different one at night. Before I left home, we had some peculiar ideas about what a college, as we called all boarding schools at that time, was like. We all thought it was composed of one immense building with, say, four stories, and that the first year you were at school, you were placed on the first floor and promoted from floor to floor until you reached the top floor when you would have finished school. Exceptionally bright students might skip a floor. Well, it so happened that when I reached Tuskegee, I was placed, to begin with, in the attic. And there was great rejoicing at home when I sent back the intelligence that I was on the highest floor. It was a confirmation of what the old folks at home had said. I already knew enough without going to school. My education began at Tuskegee the first morning the sun rose upon me there. When I walked out upon the campus, I took a cursory view of the situation and was startled at what I saw. There before my eyes was a huge pair of mules drawing a machine plow, which to me at that time was a mystery. To my right, a little distance, was a brick machine making bricks nearly as fast as I could count. To the rear was the sawmill with its throbbing steam engine turning out thousands of feet of lumber daily. There were girls cultivating the flowers and picking berries, and boys erecting huge brick buildings, while others suspended high in the air were painted buildings. Some were hitching horses and driving carriages, while others were milking cows and making cheese. Then there were great fields of beef cattle and other fields of young growing horses and mules. I wandered around among these things until I came to the blacksmith shop. There I found some boys studying, drawing, and others hammering iron, each one with an intense earnestness that I had never seen before in young men. Close by was the machine shop, where molten iron was being fashioned into various articles from plowshares to steam engines. Out on the parade grounds was a host of young men dressed in beautiful blue uniforms as spotless as a minister's robe, marching to and fro about the campus to the exquisite music of a brass band. All these groups of boys and girls that I saw there were presided over by a man and a woman whom I afterward learned was an instructor and the complete, almost abject obedience accorded by the students was something that interested me greatly. The truth was, I saw so many things there that day that I was bewildered, but as I looked about me, it gradually dawned on me that I had at least found the looked-for opportunity. Simultaneously with this opportunity for self-education came many real hardships, to say nothing of imaginary ones, which nearly ruined my health. I was poorly clad, and the winter then settling in was unusually cold. I had only one undershirt 
and one pair of drawers. I could not, of course, put these articles in the laundry, and therefore I had to pull them off on Saturday nights, wash them in my room, and get them dry enough to wear to breakfast Sunday morning. Consequently, many Sunday mornings found me sitting at the breakfast table wearing damp underwear. I could do no better without leaving school, and this I was determined not to do. Fortunately, I had a small, tough frame that it was difficult to shake. Then, too, the life that I had lived back in the country had taught me to rely on myself in times of difficulty. I now recall circumstances that assure me that it was only my determination that kept me at Tuskegee and enabled me to enjoy its opportunities. My hardest task, after all, was to ignore the advice of my student friends who were always saying to me, You ought to go home. This work is too hard for you. This old school is working you to death. This fare of cow peas and bread and molasses would kill you. What you need is nourishing food. These arguments were hard to controvert, especially when there was truth in them, for Tuskegee was poor and had difficulty in feeding her students in those days. But I could see no virtue in the argument so long as the very students that were advising me were themselves facing the same hardships. I struggled on and was at length promoted from the position of a common laborer to that of a hosteler in charge of all the boys dealing with horses and then to the much sought position of special assistant to the farm manager. Thank you for tuning in for Sips from the Sip. Joining me next time to discuss Chapter 2 will be Mrs. Alma Fisher. Mrs. Fisher is the retired director of Library Services and Archives on the Utica campus of Hines Community College. Be sure to join us for our conversation about Holtzclaw and his family. The Utica Institute Museum is dedicated to expanding knowledge of the history of Utica Institute and its role in Southern Black education. This program is supported by donations from our listeners. If you enjoy learning about the history of William Holtzclaw, the Utica Institute, and Mississippi, consider donating. To support Zips from the Sip and all the work at the Utica Institute Museum, visit uticainstitute.org slash donate. Until next time, this has been Jean Green coming to you from the heart of the Sip.